listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 261. As we continue our COVID series, today we're digging into the question of long COVID, or rather the many, many questions raised by long COVID for working people who are struggling to both pay the bills and to recover or to care for themselves with long-term symptoms and disabilities. We speak to two advocates about what long COVID means for workers. Before we start, we have two quick announcements. First, we want to announce a very special live episode of Belabored coming up on December 15th at 7 p.m. To wrap up the year and our in-depth series on the ongoing pandemic's effect on workers, we will host a live podcast recording featuring an online discussion with two rank-and-file labor leaders about how the pandemic has impacted the labor movement for so-called essential workers. We'll be speaking with Elizabeth Lalas, a registered nurse and union steward with National Nurses United, and Gia Lee, a special education teacher and steering member of the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators. You can RSVP at DescentMagazine.org. Just follow the link in our show notes. And second, we want to remind you that if you appreciate our independent journalism and want to support our in-depth reporting on underreported labor issues, please consider contributing to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash belabored. And there you can also get some free swag to go with your donation, courtesy of artist-activist Molly Crabapple. And now, the news. Last week, Congress took the extraordinary step of passing legislation to prevent a railroad union strike, basically shutting down an impasse between the unions and the rail carriers and imposing an agreement that tens of thousands of railroad workers had voted to reject a few weeks earlier. The unions and carriers were headed toward a deadline in their negotiations, after which there could have been a strike just ahead of the holidays. In past years, railroad strikes have happened after the last of multiple deadlines have passed under the complex negotiation process laid out in the Railway Labor Act. But those heavily regulated strikes have generally been immediately squelched by Congress. The last railroad strike in 1992, for example, was quashed within two days by congressional legislation that forced the parties into arbitration. The Biden administration went a step further and decided that it wasn't even going to risk a short strike amid much fear-mongering from the rail carriers about how costly a nationwide rail strike would be. As we reported earlier in Belabored, most of the dozen rail unions involved in the negotiations had already agreed to essentially the same contract framework, which included substantial pay rises, but did virtually nothing to meet workers' longstanding demands for more paid sick time and more predictable, stable schedules. Back in September, the Biden administration intervened in talks between the carriers and the two biggest unions that were still holding out, Smart TD and BLET, which represent conductors and engineers. But months passed, and after their members reviewed the tentative agreement, Smart ended up rejecting the deal two weeks ago. Altogether, four unions voted to reject their tentative agreements. That left the Biden administration scrambling to avert a rail strike with just days left on the clock and prompted Congress to come up with legislation that would effectively impose the tentative agreement that one-third of the unions had voted down. Many labor advocates decried this move as undermining the railroad workers' right to strike and shoving a bad deal down their throats unilaterally. Many grassroots labor activists, like those with Railroad Workers United, a rank-and-file organization, criticized the union's leadership for not really pushing the rail carriers on key scheduling issues and effectively leveraging the threat of a strike. Although Biden claimed he was acting in the public interest by preventing a rail strike that would have hugely disrupted the economy, rail unions called the congressional intervention an impingement on the autonomy of the unions and the bargaining process. 
Lawmakers further showed whose side they were really on in the negotiations when the Senate rejected a parallel measure that would have mandated seven paid sick days annually for rail workers. That would have gone a considerable way toward meeting one of the workers' key demands. Railroad workers, particularly conductors and engineers, often have schedules that force them to be on call around the clock, leading to exhaustion and misery. A logistical model known as Precision Scheduled Railroading, or PSR, has squeezed railroad workers to move freight faster on unpredictable timetables. The lack of paid sick time and punitive attendance policies, which basically penalize workers whenever they take unscheduled time off, have also exacerbated the erratic scheduling. These high-stress, extremely exhausting working conditions have put many workers' health and safety at risk, according to labor advocates. In the end, the legislation to impose the deal was approved by a wide margin in both the House and Senate. But the bill for paid sick days got too small a majority in the Senate to reach the supermajority threshold. The Senate also failed to pass a separate bill that would have extended the so-called cooling-off period, during which unions cannot strike while they negotiate. By 60 days. In a statement following the votes, Smart TD assailed the decision by the White House and Congress to preempt a strike and said the White House should have forced concessions from the rail carriers, which have made massive profits off of the industry's hyper-exploited workforce, while the industry has hemorrhaged jobs over recent years. Smart TD said, quote, It is extremely disappointing that 43 senators voted to prioritize the corporate greed of rail carriers and CEOs over the needs and quality of life improvements that our members so desperately deserve. Because of precision scheduled railroading, our members are forced to work more hours, have less stability, suffer more stress, and receive less rest. The ask for sick leave was not out of preference, but rather out of necessity. No American worker should ever have to face the decision of going to work sick, fatigued, or mentally unwell, versus getting disciplined or being fired by their employer. Yet that is exactly what is happening every single day on this nation's largest freight railroads, unquote. One thing that the rail talks did do is briefly put paid sick days in the center of our national political conversation. Paid sick days are not just something that rail workers need, of course. According to the National Partnership, quote, more than 34 million private sector workers cannot earn a single paid sick day, unquote. While the portion of the workforce without paid sick days has diminished over the last decade, it's still nearly 30% of the private sector workforce. And the rates are worse in workforces that are majority women or people of color. The fact that the paid sick days legislation passed in the House is also an indication that this issue has traction among progressive lawmakers, even if the measure was doomed in the Senate. The next round of contract negotiations for rail workers doesn't start until 2025, and it's likely that in the meantime, working conditions will continue to deteriorate. Railroad Workers United has stressed that the only way railroad workers are going to affect systemic change in the industry is to keep organizing union members and building solidarity with other elements of the labor movement, which it did do in these past few months. Ross Gruders, a member of RWU, told Jacobin that although this latest contract battle was ultimately a loss for the union, quote, within the last couple of months, we've built a network of people who are looking to RWU for guidance in this process that could be being done by our rail unions, and they could be pushing for some very big demands for the whole working class. It's not just railroad workers who need predictable scheduling, who need time off the job. All workplaces need that, unquote. The strike wave continues in Britain, with rail strike dates announced for over Christmas and the first nationwide university strike kicking off last week. But as the wave continues, workers within it also continue to win raises and wind down their actions. This week, voting to end the strike and accept a new raise offer starts among BT workers, whom you heard about in August in episode 252 from Dave Ward, who is the General Secretary of the Communications Workers Union. 
BT workers are responsible for broadband internet, phone, and mobile phone services, and the strikes by BT workers overlapped with CWU's other workers at Royal Mail, as well as strikes at the rail system by the RMT and others, and the launch of the Enough is Enough campaign. The workers have now been offered a further £1,500 pay increase from January 1st of 2023. According to the union, this comes on top of the £1,500 flat rate increase that was imposed by BT in April of this year, so the deal equates to a headline fully consolidated and pensionable pay increase totaling £3,000 in the current financial year. Percentage-wise, since the raise is a flat cost-of-living increase, it will depend on the worker, with the lowest-paid employees seeing this as a raise of up to 15%, and for others it will fall under 10%. But this is a permanent pay increase, not a one-time bonus, which means that future negotiations will take place on top of this pay rise. The workers I spoke with had been particularly angry that the first raise had been imposed on them without any negotiations, and that anger was a particular impetus for the strike. The Guardian notes, quote, This deal means that all of BT's approximately 58,000 frontline workers, including call center staff and engineers, will benefit, as will about half of the managers in its UK operation. The company, which said that overall 85% of its UK-based staff would benefit from the cost-of-living pay rise, employs about 100,000 staff in total, end quote. CWU is urging the workers to take the deal, with Deputy General Secretary Andy Kerr saying, quote, Members have every reason to stand tall at what the first large-scale industrial action in BT Group in 35 years has achieved. One thing is absolutely certain. If members hadn't supported the strike action so solidly, the company wouldn't have voluntarily offered a penny more than what it imposed in April. Getting BT back to the negotiating table was a huge achievement in itself, setting an important marker for the future that CWU members will never accept imposition. Arguably the biggest achievement of all, however, was on the issue of consolidation, because that's something the company really didn't want to concede. End quote. We will, of course, see if the workers accept the deal more soon and keep us posted on your own workplace negotiations, tentative agreements, and campaigns. Email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Academic workers across the University of California system are on strike. It's one of the biggest work stoppages ever in American higher education, and it's being organized by three United Auto Workers locals. Driven by frustration with low wages and exploitative working conditions, 48,000 graduate workers, academic researchers, and postdoctoral scholars walked off the job on November 14th to demand significant pay raises, childcare subsidies, greater job security, free public transit, improved accommodation for workers with disabilities, and tuition relief for international scholars. The strike already seems to be yielding some results. The administration has agreed to raise the pay of academic researchers and postdoctoral scholars who make up about 12,000 of the workers on strike by up to 29%. Postdocs have complained of being paid so little that they've been forced to go into debt or have had to leave their studies altogether to seek better paying work. The university insists its proposal for raising compensation is, quote, fair and generous, unquote, but its latest offer falls well short of what the unions are asking. The proposed minimum postdoc salary, for example, is less than $60,000 per year, but the unions are demanding a minimum of $70,000 annually. The unions also want a 14% salary increase for academic researchers, but the administration has offered only a 4% raise, followed by 3% annual raises in subsequent years. Currently, according to the unions, over 70% of UC academic workers are rent burdened. The strike reflects a growing crisis in academic labor across the country. Around the same time that the UC strike was launched, adjunct faculty at the new school here in New York, who are also represented by UAW, went on strike as well. 
about 2,000 part-time faculty are in their third week of a strike that has basically shut down all classes. Having been without a contract since 2019, the union just rejected the administration's proposed contract by a huge margin, with more than 95% voting no. The union has said that the proposal would have raised healthcare costs and limited access to the healthcare plan's grievance process. The unions and the administration entered mediation last Thursday. Unlike other private universities of its size, 87% of the new school's faculty is made up of adjuncts, meaning that basically the university runs off of contingent workers who have little job security and do the equivalent of academic piecework for about $4,300 per course. And that means that when there is a faculty strike, classes are shut down. The university has created a stopgap online learning module, but parents and students are angry about the suspension of classes and some have threatened to sue the administration. According to the news outlet The City, the university has claimed that its offer to raise pay by 18% over the course of a five-year contract was, quote, a financial stretch, unquote, noting that unlike other private universities in the city, the new school has a relatively small endowment and depends heavily on tuition. The union sees the start of mediation as a sign of progress. One of the main sticking points is how labor outside of class time will be compensated. Historically, Time spent on activities like grading and developing curricula has not been counted as paid time. Though at other institutions, adjunct faculty have recently won pay for these hours. Now that nearly all faculty have stopped working inside or outside the classroom, the new school might have to rethink their policy. Twitter just continues to have problems. This week, its janitors at Twitter hired through a subcontractor because of course they are picketing outside the company's San Francisco headquarters. The company is apparently ending its contract with one subcontractor called Flagship, and according to the California Labor Federation, the new contractor is not rehiring the existing workers. They've been locked out, in other words, since December 2nd. No word on who is picking up the trash around the office, but we're betting it isn't Elon Musk. It is somewhat ironic that most of the news stories on this action come from, well, collections of tweets from the janitors, their union, SEIU Local 87, and the Federation. But anyway, that's journalism these days. And as friend of the show Malcolm Harris noted, yes, also on Twitter, tech company janitors are pretty much the only Silicon Valley employees that have ever managed to successfully unionize. And Malcolm knows of which he speaks because his book on Palo Alto and the uh, tech economy comes out soon. Enough plugging for my friends. That's because despite being subcontracted, the Justice for Janitors organizing model was designed around putting pressure on the company that receives the services, that would be Twitter in this case, as the ultimate employer and thus the one with the power to provide the workers decent conditions. Otherwise, the union realized you'd just be chasing low-road subcontractors with no real power around in circles while big, rich tech companies dump one contractor for another whenever they feel like it and whenever it can save them some money. That strategy can also be seen in the San Francisco law that the janitors say Elon Musk is breaking. As Mass Live writes, quote, New contractors for security and janitorial services are required by San Francisco law to hire existing workers in the 90 days after a transition from one contract to the next. If not hired during this time frame, workers can seek back pay and benefits for whatever portion of the transition period. The janitors were also joined by former Twitter tech workers on the line as well. And some of those workers are filing lawsuits. Attorney Lisa Bloom told reporters, quote, We are hitting Twitter and Elon with every applicable claim from promissory estoppel to breach of contract to breach of their implied agreement to violation of the Warren Act to civil rights violations, everything but the kitchen sink, end quote. 
But perhaps the Twitter direct employees will also learn from the janitor's long history of organizing in Silicon Valley. Make a lot of noise, raise hell, and shut everything down until they give you decent conditions. These days, you may not see many signs in your everyday life that the pandemic is still ongoing. Mask mandates have been removed, social gatherings seem to be resuming, and employers are pushing workers to return to in-person work. But for several million people across the U.S., the pandemic is still assaulting their bodies and minds every day, with chronic pain, respiratory problems, cognitive issues, fatigue, and other hard-to-treat and often hard-to-diagnose symptoms. For more than two years, people living with long COVID, or so-called long haulers, have largely had to struggle on their own to access medical treatment, disability benefits, and workplace accommodations. And they have often faced discrimination and disbelief when trying to advocate for their rights as patients and as workers. Census Bureau data indicates that long COVID may be impacting more than 7% of the population today. By one estimate, as many as 20% of COVID patients experience long-term symptoms. While there is still much that scientists do not understand about the illness, long COVID is profoundly changing the way people work, often intersecting with other forms of discrimination, income inequality, and systemic barriers to health care and leave time. To learn more about long COVID as an issue of labor rights and disability justice, we spoke with Rebecca Jacobs of the COVID-19 Long Hauler Advocacy Project and Kimberly Naxted of the Century Foundation. We begin with Rebecca discussing how her own experience with long COVID led to her involvement with advocacy for disability justice. Maybe we could just start with a definition. So um, what is a long hauler? And, and I guess how, how would you define the problem of long COVID right now? Yeah, sure. So uh, first, thank you for having me. Um, so defining long COVID, um, which is officially identified as post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, you'll also see that abbreviated as PASC. It is a collection of post-viral conditions or symptoms that persist after the initial infection. So someone who is was infected with COVID-19 has been through the acute infection, is tested negative, but they have symptoms which can eventually turn into a number of full-on health conditions persisting for months or even years after clearing their initial infection. And it's estimated that 10 to 30% of those infected with COVID-19 will develop these post-viral symptoms after their initial infection. But importantly, the vast majority, which is 85% of long COVID patients, had mild acute cases of COVID-19 and were never hospitalized. And some were even asymptomatic in their initial infection. They were never in severe condition enough to be hospitalized, but they have also never recovered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and. Can you talk about how your network came together, Um, like how you personally got into this work? And um, was it just people found each other online or how did you connect with people and and why did you need to reach out to people? I first got connected to the long COVID community um, through Facebook support groups. So first, um, I had joined Amy Watson, who's actually the person credited with coining the term long hauler. She had a group that was round one um, long COVID fighters. It's people whose date of infection onset is prior to April 1st, 2020. So I first became 
uh, sick with COVID-19, March 26, 2020. That's what I count as my first date of symptoms. And I've been a long hauler ever since. So I was sick at the very, very beginning of the pandemic. And so as this was going on, um, and the weeks and then months started to continue and I wasn't getting better and I was still sick and I had this feeling of what's wrong with me or other people experiencing this. I feel like I'm going crazy. I started looking for long COVID group support groups online on Facebook. And so um, I first joined the round one long COVID fighters group uh, run by Amy Watson. And from there I was connected to, or I joined the COVID-19 long hauler advocacy project main Facebook group, which is run by our president and founder, Karen Bischoff. And so I continued to um, be active in that group. And then when Karen was looking for more people to join the board of directors, I applied and we carved out my role as director of community support that can, it plays into my strengths as a therapist and a social worker. Um, so I'm very familiar with the mental health um, aspect of COVID, but also the um, I've experience in helping clients advocate for financial assistance and, you know, the social service entitlements, the social safety net that a lot of long haulers um, are turning to at this point in time. So that was how I came into this role. Can you talk about how um, your work was affected or um, how your your overall sort of work life experience uh, changed as a result of um, becoming a long hauler? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I took um, I took one month off of work when I was first infected. I tried to hang in there and work kind of on a more part time basis since um, we were already working remotely. Um, but I realized quickly that I honestly didn't. I just didn't have the lung capacity to keep working. And as a therapist, lung capacity is something that's pretty important. So um, I just wasn't able to do it. So I took a month um, off work entirely. And um, I <clears throat> then I returned to work slowly, that I slowly started um, increasing the days that I was working, the hours that I was working, the number of clients that I was seeing um, as I worked my way back up to a full, my full caseload. I also, my coworkers at the time were going into the office three days a week up until I would say last year, I was only going in once a week. So I didn't have the physical capacity to commute and work. And that is something that I um, you know, that I have run into a lot, this conversation of I can either commute because I live in New Jersey and I work in New York. I can either commute to work or I can work a full day. I don't have the physical capacity to do both. So which is it that I'm going to do? Unsurprisingly, it's that I'm, you know, going to work, but remotely. So I was once a week for up until last fall, then I was three days a week. And now I am up to four days a week. Is this something that you feel like is getting progressively better or do you feel like this might be something you're dealing with for like the indefinite future? Oh, it's absolutely something indefinite. I think that, you know, that goes back to 
this idea from the beginning of the pandemic is COVID is something that from which you either die or recover, but it has turned into a long-term disability, a chronic illness for the majority of people who become long haulers. Um, I wouldn't say that my symptoms have improved. I would say that I've gotten used to managing them. So, which is a similar thing that you'll hear from anyone with a chronic illness or a disability is that I've acclimated and I've just kind of gotten used to having these symptoms, but I wouldn't say that they themselves have gotten better. If I push myself too hard, I get a rebound effect. And this is something that it's called the push and crash phenomenon that unlike most conditions where or other conditions where the more that you exert yourself, the more you'll eventually acclimate to a higher level of functioning. Long COVID is the opposite. Long haulers being asked to work or generally exert themselves beyond what's medically advised leads to acute health crises. The guidance for long haulers building back their um, level of functioning, their level of exertion is this idea called stop, pace, rest. So you're pacing your exertion. You're stopping when you notice yourself that your symptoms are starting to increase and you take a rest until you feel like you're ready to pick it back up. Um, that is not something that's compatible with most employment settings. And at this point, I have prioritized working full time to the best of my ability. But the um, other side of that is that I spend pretty much the entire weekend in bed. Wow, that sounds exhausting. I mean, it sounds exhausting just to manage this on a day to day basis. Like it's like yes. another, it's like another job, kind of. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And can I ask how your employer was able to accommodate you, or, or did you struggle to have those accommodations uh, put in place for you when you um, explained what your symptoms were and and the impact of long COVID? I consider myself very lucky in that my individual employer has been incredibly understanding. Um, it helps that we are, you know, a small agency. It also helps that my employer in my employers, but in, in particular, my direct supervisor is incredibly um, COVID aware. So my as a therapist, I report directly to our clinical director. He takes COVID very, very seriously. We still require full masking in our clinic. There are HEPA filters everywhere. And so he's reading a lot just on a daily basis about COVID and about long COVID. So I have been incredibly lucky and very, it's very, very rare that you will find a long hauler who has the level of understanding and flexibility in their position that I do. The other thing is that for a long time, we were doing um, primarily remote therapy as many, most, I would say, if not all therapeutic clinics and agencies were, was doing teletherapy. So that also itself gave me the permission to try to work a little bit more around my symptoms and that if I was working from home, I could either stagger client sessions throughout the day, or if I need to, I would, you know, kind of front load the day so that I could rest later in the day. And since I was seeing clients remotely anyway, my, you know, the clients with whom I work are at home, it wasn't as big of an issue for me not to be in the office because it's not like I would be seeing them in the office anyway. So I think that that level of flexibility and how slowly I was 
allowed to try to work back up to where I was before is actually what has gotten me to the point where I am capable of working in the office four days a week. Um, The other thing that I have that many people don't is that I live with my mother and she is incredibly just helpful on a tactical level. We've reconfigured my commute that involves her driving me more. She will, you know, I'll either order something for a meal or she'll make me something if I don't have the energy to do it. So the two of us have really become a team in figuring out how can we reduce the burden on me outside of work so that I can save all of my energy as much as possible for work. And that's really something that not a lot of people have. I imagine that one of the reasons your uh, network formed in the first place was to bring attention to the plight of people who are not so fortunate, um, you know, don't have someone, uh, don't have, don't have resources for care at home or um, have an employer who just um, might be more willing to just, you know, let them go than try to accommodate them. So what are some of the stories that you've heard in, um, in the years that you've been doing this work? Um, Just kind of what you've described of, you know, people either having to voluntarily leave their job or having lost their job because their setting is not able to adapt or, you know, allow them to modify, you know, their work itself or the setting in which they work to accommodate their needs. This was something that was a very big issue for me in the beginning during acute COVID when I was first returning to work. One of my most prevalent symptom clusters has been pulmonary issues. So worsening asthma, continued shortness of breath, coughing. And, you know, like I said before, as a therapist, the whole being able to talk has been important for me. And so I was very concerned that I wasn't going to be able to do that. Fortunately, I have the ability to sit in a chair and talk when I'm at work, but most people don't have that. So I think the stories that I've heard a lot are people who were fired or people who had to leave their jobs completely um, in order because they just couldn't do their job at the level that was being required of them. Yeah. And um, when it comes to, you know, the protections that are available to people um, under the law, what is the situation now with people in terms of either, you know, applying for some kind of temporary disability, um, you know, seeking accommodation at work or, or seeking disability benefits if they feel that they can't return to work for the long term? Right. So the question of how to create workplace policies that could support long haulers is a really difficult one. Long COVID was codified as a disability by um, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. At the same time, the language that the ADA uses when talking about what is legally required for employers to provide is called reasonable workplace accommodations. That is their language that they use. And reasonable is defined as an accommodation that doesn't fundamentally change the nature or the responsibilities of the job itself. Unfortunately, it's up to the individual employer to decide what is reasonable. So you're going to see a huge amount of variety and individuality based on just who your employer is as a person. Are they someone who is going to be understanding? Are they someone who, like many people across the country and even the world, still don't believe 
that long COVID is a thing. They think you should be better by now. And if not, you're experiencing some kind of mental health issue. Um, and it's up to the nature of your job responsibilities. So my employer decided that me being me working remotely, even when my colleagues were in the office, was a reasonable accommodation because I was still seeing all of my clients and I was still doing some degree of face-to-face contact with them. There happen to be other employers that probably wouldn't agree with that. Um, so it's it's very difficult to establish comprehensive guidance for everybody because it's so dependent on the individual employer, on the responsibilities of each job, and on the symptoms of the long hauler themselves. Long COVID is something that's very, very um, different from person to person and even from day to day for those individuals. So it's difficult to create those kinds of policies that would support a long hauler at work. What may be more realistic to actually implement are policies that mitigate the negative impact that other of the other challenges that long haulers face in order to make them more available for work. So um, one of the issues that um, long haulers are facing within the healthcare system is that there aren't enough healthcare providers who are able to adequately diagnose and treat long COVID. So one example of a policy that could be put in place is to implement mandatory top-down medical provider education through uh, continuing medical education programs. This would in turn create a larger pool of long COVID-informed providers. And when you're talking about long, a larger pool of long COVID-informed providers, you're going to address another issue created by this lack of access to timely medical care. There are some, excuse me, long COVID competent physicians and specialists from the wait list for an appointment is one, even two years. So in addition to the physical and mental health implications of a lack of access to, excuse me, timely medical care, this also creates a barrier for many who need medical documentation for, as you mentioned, social security disability applications or for workplace accommodations. And that can occur either because they don't have the opportunity to get into a doctor's office or get an appointment by the time their employer or SSDI is requiring this documentation, or because of this paucity of long COVID competent providers the doctors that they are seeing are refusing to provide um, documentation that would support a disability application or would support workplace accommodations because there are also many doctors that don't believe in or fully understand long COVID as a condition. Uh, I imagine it's quite a bit harder for folks who don't have insurance or just don't have access to a, you know, a, a regular primary care physician, a local yes. clinic. Um, I, and, you know, if you're low income, if you're undocumented, if you, if English isn't your first language, like all those things are, you know, there were barriers before COVID, but in the time of the pandemic that just makes seeking these accommodations kind of yes. impossible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as the number of people with long COVID increases, and it's going to increase with every new variant of COVID that comes out, there are going to be yet more individuals in rural areas and areas with um, a lack of access to medical care in communities that are 
already disenfranchised from accessing the healthcare system, like people of color, like undocumented individuals, like um, English language learners, and even just, you know, folks who don't have the level of healthcare literacy that I do. As a social worker, I am very comfortable having a conversation with a doctor using their language, but I am the rare long hauler in that sense. And in terms of insurance, because long COVID itself is new, insurance companies want to research every, you know, all of the treatments or the testing. They want studies that support why they, as insurance companies, have to pay for all of these tests and all these treatments that long haulers are being prescribed or that they need. But none of that research exists yet. So many patients who are already too disabled and too sick to work or working on reduced or no income are being forced to pay out of pocket or leave without the medical care or testing that they need. I mean, it seems like a lot of people who who should be able to make the case that they should qualify for some kind of disability aid or support, they should be able to, but for various reasons, they're just getting rejected or ignored. Yes. Um, what, what like recourse do people have? I mean, I know the Department of Labor has tried to come up with some guidelines around this, but you know, is it you know if if my boss threatens to fire me because I have long COVID, can I like call up the Department of Labor? Like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. So the most progress has been made in um, the in terms of long COVID being codified as a disability by the ADA. We're still a long way away from Department of Labor regulations that codify long haulers as a protected class. Without that, there isn't that recourse for employers who may terminate people based on their long COVID status. But even if they exist, this is, and this is something, you know, on which the disability community has been working for decades is how to protect disabled individuals, even if there are DOL regs in place. Um, Because, and it again goes back to this idea of reasonable workplace accommodations that an employer can say, well, I would have been happy to accommodate you in another way, but what you're asking for is unreasonable. And no, I'm going to find someone who can do the job without them needing to ask me to make accommodations that are beyond the scope of, you know, the job itself. Um, It's very, very difficult. There are a lot of people who are running into these issues of being, you know, they'll put in for part-time and they're rejected or they're let go or their position is eliminated or even just as basic as you know, in 2020, there, everyone was remote. So it was actually a lot easier for long haulers. And even up until last year, it was a lot easier for long haulers to stay employed because everything was remote. As we as a society have been moving towards this myth of po- of a post-COVID, post-pandemic society, There are a lot of things that are returning to the way that they were pre-COVID, including the expectation that you work in the office. And what that does is that it 
creates this huge barrier to long haulers to be able to work in part because of what I said earlier, that due to our physical limitations, it's a question of, do you want me to work or do you want me to be in the office? Um, in other, for other long haulers, there are long haulers who have developed cancers, who have developed immunodeficiencies as a result of long COVID. And so being in a room of people when there also isn't the same level of masking and COVID precautions that there was a year ago, much less two years ago, is dangerous for them. So by forcing the workforce and trying to force society back into a pre-COVID setting, you are pushing long haulers out of the workforce because you're creating all of these situations that are either too demanding for them physically or genuinely unsafe. Yeah. I, uh, I think I saw on your website that you had been um, doing some advocacy with the department of labor and um, trying to um, get people sort of involved in a, in ongoing dialogue with the agency. Yes. Have there been inroads made? I mean, I, I know there's like a long COVID, you know, page on the DOL website, but like, are yeah. there, are there concrete things that we can point to um, under this administration? I, I think that we're still very much at the beginning. A lot of the things that, you know, the long COVID community has done to advance is through ourselves. There are a number of long COVID bills that have been introduced. There's the Treat Long COVID Act, the Pandemic Centers of Excellence Act, the Long Haulers Act, the Care for Long COVID Act. Those are things that have been introduced. Um, and we have been having ongoing meetings with the National Institutes of Health, with the White House COVID response team, and various divisions of health and human services, including the Department of Labor. Um, at the same time, it's, it's moving slowly. Um, and there are some lawmakers who have voted to eliminate these supports, even as long COVID grows in its scope. Can we talk a little bit maybe about the demographics or what we know from the, you know, the research that is emerging about long COVID? Um, you know, it was clear from uh, the pandemic when it was at its peak that it was affecting different communities differently and some marginalized groups were you know much more vulnerable to um, to acute covid um, do we see the mm -hmm. same patterns emerging with long covid is it is it different in terms of um, who is most affected at this point research has shown that everyone is susceptible to developing long covid if infected with uh, covid-19 this includes um, this includes children and, you know, whereas the elderly were ones who were said to be more at risk for COVID-19. Um, community data actually shows that 15 to 20 percent of children develop long COVID. Data suggests that the majority of long haulers are, yes, women between the ages of 30 and 60. Um, there's no evidence that being vaccinated prevents completely long COVID, but some research is coming out that shows that being vaccinated against COVID-19 will reduce the prevalence of long COVID or the severity of long COVID versus preventing it altogether. So long COVID can cause the same symptoms, associated conditions, and level of disability regardless of prior health history, gender, age, any of that. 
But do we see sort of like different demographics disproportionately affected simply because of their, I guess, social circumstances? Or can we speculate on that? I don't know. I don't have that data in front of me. I don't know if we we could speculate on that. I think when we're talking about the prevalence or risk due to social circumstances like access to healthcare and having more people in a home versus others, I think that's more related to the rate of acute infection versus the risk of developing long COVID. Mm -hmm. So someone who, um, you know, lives by themselves in a large house, they're able to socially isolate, they are just as much at risk of developing long COVID as someone who lives in a multifamily home, someone who lives in a lower income area. The thing that those kinds of situations may impact is it may compound the lack of access to COVID-competent medical care that long haulers are facing. And it may compound the economic impact of long COVID symptoms because people who uh, live in low-income communities, those who are people of color, are more likely to have hourly wage jobs versus salary jobs that allow for PTO and disability and things like that. Yeah. And I imagine um, there are perhaps more likely to be precariously employed and not have vacation days or sick days or any Mm -hmm. of the basic things that you need. And when we um, think about what the role of labor advocacy is in this in general, have have you talked to labor organizers or advocates uh, in the labor movement to, I guess, think about what workers who are affected by this pattern and this phenomenon could do to advocate for themselves, to take collective action, to put pressure on employers, that sort of thing? Yeah. So uh, the C-19 LAP has made a number of recommendations to the Department of Labor. Um, We've had some ongoing meetings with the Office of Disability Employment Policy, which is a division of the Department of Labor. It's very hard to encourage long haulers to take specific action in their workplace. This is something that the disability community runs into a lot. I personally was actually disabled prior to COVID-19. I suffer from chronic traumatic brain injury. And this is something that I had to struggle with when I was ever I was applying for jobs. It's the question of disclosing a disability. Legally, you are not required to disclose your disability. Additionally, legally, employers can't terminate you for not disclosing a disability, nor can they ask you what your disability is. That said, there is still the potential, as I mentioned earlier, for employers to decide to move in a different direction and to protect themselves legally. They're not going to say it's because you're disabled. They're going to come up with something else. So it's difficult to encourage people to take action or put pressure on their employers because Everyone needs to work in order to live, but especially when you have long haulers who are running into, as I mentioned before, hundreds of thousands of dollars of potential out-of-pocket medical expenses, it feels irresponsible as fellow long haulers, as community members, and as leaders in the community to encourage them to take action against their employer if this is the if this is the thing that makes the choice between them being able to afford groceries, afford heating or not. So 
uh, we've been working with long haulers to encourage them and help them learn how to advocate for themselves, for example, in medical settings. So one of the things that C19 LAP developed is kind of, we call it our master document. It's a list of what specialists you should look for based on your symptoms. Again, if we go back to the differences in health literacy across our community, not everyone is going to know if I have a headache, that is something for which I should see a neurologist versus just my primary care doctor, for example. Or, um, you know, the even if you do have knowledge about that, one of the most prevalent conditions associated with long COVID is dysautonomia. Dysautonomia could be treated by um, a neurologist, a cardiologist, dependent on which of your symptoms are the most prevalent. So are you having um, heart and blood pressure issues as your primary presentation of dysautonomia? That's a cardiologist. Are you having headaches? Are you having you know temperature swings? That would be more of a neurologist, but they're treating the same condition. So we've developed a lot of resources that help long haulers know which specialist to look for, also which um, what kind of blood work and imaging studies they should be asking for to look for the conditions and the problems that you're going to see associated with long COVID. We also have a list of COVID-19 competent medical providers and post-COVID clinics in all 50 states of Puerto Rico. So at the more micro level, we're helping our long haulers learn to advocate for themselves within their medical provider community. We're also providing support groups. Um, C-19 LAP has support groups online by state and also support groups for those in special populations. So that includes um, pediatric and teen long haulers, long haulers who are LGBTQ folks, people of color, those working in healthcare. We also have groups for parents of pediatric long haulers and for caregivers of long haulers. For example, I mentioned my mom before, she is my caregiver. And so there's a lot of spouses, of parents, of adult children who have become caregivers to these family members since they are now long haulers. And so we try to provide support for them as well. Yeah. I know you're, you're focused sort of on the policy level solutions, but I mean, in terms of like a private uh, right of action under the ADA, you should be able to um, bring a legal challenge to an employer if they um, fire you in violation of that, right? Because of your disability. Right. I think that, again, it's, it requires proving that your reason for termination was because of your disability. One of the, the I would say the main way that um, employers will kind of, of sidestep that is to have documentation that points to other issues. And it could be insubordination or, um, you know, any, pretty much anything that isn't a disability. This is Again, the same thing that people, LGBTQ plus individuals face, that people of color face, that employers are, technically speaking, they could, they do have the recourse to bring legal action against an employer for wrongful termination, for discrimination. But in order to have that be successful, you have to prove that you were terminated as a function of discrimination. And additionally, you know, you had said even at the beginning that 
managing this condition is like another full-time job. It is. And so just the mental and the physical and financial as well burden of trying to bring action against an employer for a lot of long haulers is it's just too much. And it just doesn't feel like they're, it doesn't feel like something that's going to be helpful or that's going to gain them anything. And they don't have the resources to expend on that, whether it's financial resources or time, or even just the mental and physical energy of trying to gather all the documentation and everything. If you're most long haulers, if you're if you lose your position, you're focused on trying to find another one or your focus and or, you know, applying for things like unemployment or disability. But even a lot of, I know personally, a lot of long haulers in our community who have applied for disability based on having long COVID and it was denied. And that depends a lot on the documentation that you're able to submit and also what the Social Security Disability Administration is doing to kind of create a uniform understanding of long COVID. In C-19 LAP, we've talked about, you know, if someone, also the reporting of the data of the number, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but the number of people who are applying for SSD, SSDI, because of their long COVID, the reporting of that number is very, very low for what we would expect. I think that one potential reason for that is that many folks are applying for disability under their associated conditions with long COVID because those are the conditions that are have been more uh, that have been around for longer that are more widely understood and widely recognized. So things like MECFS, CFS stands for chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Those are a lot of the diagnoses that will you will see in a long hauler. So when long COVID, given the fact that long COVID is new and was just recently codified as a disability by the ADA, many people will apply for SSD, SSDI based on their other diagnoses because that gives them a better chance of their application being accepted. What that does is that it appears to the Social Security Disability Administration that not a lot of long haulers are applying. They are. They just don't realize that the application they're looking at for someone who lists dysautonomia, MECFS, and POTS onset of illness, April 2020, is actually a long haul. My other question regarding sort of labor advocacy is, um, are, are any labor unions working on, um, you know, contract language or something like that that would um, uh, institute some more formal protections for um, the workers that they represent? Right. I think that, um, again, it's kind of the same answer that until there's robust Department of Labor regulations that specifically name long COVID, and those are being worked on. It's not that long COVID is being ignored by DOL. They're just, you know, in the process of developing them. And to some degree, more research and understanding in the medical community is needed um, before the Department of Labor can really understand, okay, this is how this would prevent someone from working, etc. Um, and I think also just 
the understanding of what it means to have flexibility in the workplace is even so tricky. And, um, you know, I know that there are a lot of folks who were disabled pre-COVID that had been trying to get the kinds of accommodations in the workplace that everyone was given in March 2020. The idea of full remote telework didn't exist before the pandemic, but that's something that would have gotten a lot of disabled people into the workforce earlier. And I know from the discussions within the disability community that there's a certain level of, oh, okay, so you're saying this could have been happening all along. You just didn't want to. I do think, though, that in order for this to trickle down to unions and unions being able to fight for their members, there does need to be a DOL reg to which they are pointing um, to say this is why you can't do this. And I just think we're a little too early in that process. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, we say it's too early in the process, but we, we're already like, you know, three, like almost three years into Right. This. Exactly. Right. So early in the process. Yes. Early in the process, but not early for long hauls. And I think that, you know, something, there are a lot of parallels in a way between the early days of the HIV AIDS epidemic and COVID itself in that, especially when you're talking about the first three years, the people who were sounding the alarm were the patients. Um, And they were the patients are the ones who still are fighting for, um, you know, who are fighting for legislation, who are fighting for financial support, who are fighting for recognition within the medical community. Every Every long COVID organization that I know of beyond C19 LAP is led by long haulers. So we are the ones who are doing all this advocacy at the same time that we are sick. In that way, there's a lot of parallels and there's a lot of, you know, I still remember studies coming out within the last year of talking about this is what long COVID can do. This is the impact of long COVID. Oh my God, long COVID is a condition that affects the changes brain uh, brain biology, changes neurobiology, changes the way that your brain functions, that it changes vascular biology. That in a there is a study that you know was widely published a little while ago that said long COVID is a multi systemic condition that affects potentially every organ system of the body. For long haulers, we were like, yeah, duh, thank you for stating the obvious. But obviously, the you know medical research has to go more slowly, in part because what we had at the beginning was anecdotal research. So I think now that within the last, I would say, year, year and a half, that you have these larger studies that are coming out describing what long haulers have been experiencing all along, now the you know government and social service organizations can catch up to that yeah yeah and i mean you know we're we're talking about sort of the long term picture in terms of just um figuring out what long covid is and its broader ramifications but at the same time i feel like it's sort of like we're pushing back against this um kind of like societal effort to yes. proclaim that the pandemic is over and sort of yes, turn yep. to normal. So 
Um, can you talk about how people can kind of resist that, <laughs> this trend? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, even, even the administration, you know, for all of the things that it's signaled about wanting to help people with long COVID, um, you know, appears really eager to sort of move on despite this affecting like millions and millions of people. Yeah. So um, like, what would you say to, you know, like ordinary people who are uh, struggling with this now um, uh, and, you know, um, finding that everyone around them seems to think the pandemic is over and done with, like what, what can people do? It is, it is really, really hard. That's something that I have encountered personally that I had, you know, when I first got sick, there were a lot of people from, you know, all areas of my life, just anyone that I was connected to on social media um, that, because I think I posted like a couple of times at the very beginning saying that I was sick, that I got COVID, that were checking on me regularly. Um, Since March, 2020, that number of people who are proactively checking in on me on a regular basis, even just saying, I'm thinking of you, you know, I know we haven't talked in a while, whatever, that number has diminished. I think in, you know, in the large, in large part due to the fact that, like you just said, so many people want this pandemic to be over. And long haulers are a glaring reminder that it's not over. So by asking me and other long haulers how I'm doing, and someone asked me how I'm doing, I'm going to give them the real answer. That is that kind of bursts the bubble that people have tried to create for themselves and is a reminder that if you're still sick, then COVID isn't over. Um, I think that in part, some of that is due to the fact that collectively there hasn't been a moment to recognize and sit with the huge loss and trauma of the pandemic itself. And I'm a trauma therapist, so anything trauma related is my specialty. Um, But, you know, there's just, there's been such devastating trauma and loss in every area of life as a result of the pandemic. And we're not just talking about, obviously, the incredibly abhorrent loss of human life, but loss of the way that things were, loss of a loss of the lack of need for such strong hypervigilance of not having to think about things, of not having to say, you know, when was can you get a home test before I see you? Because you just hung out with people and you may have been exposed to COVID. There's a level, there's just a level of us being carefree that we have lost, that we can't do anymore. I think that the social distancing, the quarantine obviously led to significant economic loss and it had a lot of mental health implications. And so that's what people are trying to move away from, that they, it's too difficult to continue on on an extended basis to tolerate what it means to be in a pandemic. Unfortunately, the result of that is that long haulers are being left behind both emotionally, but physically, like I said before, as everyone is pushing to a pre-COVID work environment, you are leaving out long haulers who would be able to work, if not full-time more, had they were they not forced to come into the office um, or go on public transportation, for example. And then there's also the lack of masking um, that has happened. That is one of The only things that when I first started going out in 
I think 2021 was the first time that I started leaving the house for something other than a doctor's appointment. Genuinely, I spent and it was spring 2021. So like late spring, like May. So it was a year and two months before I was leaving the house for anything besides a doctor's appointment. And the universality of masking at the time was pretty much the only thing that made me feel safe to do so. And the vaccine mandates, for example, as well. When And I work in New York, so it used to be that you had to show proof of vaccine to get into any establishment, in particular a restaurant, where you're going to be unmasked by nature of the fact that you're in a restaurant to eat. That has been scaled back. And so the idea of going out to restaurants has been very, very difficult emotionally. And there still are times when I will choose not to go into somewhere if it feels too crowded. So there were COVID precautions that didn't just prevent further infection and further spread, but were the things that kept long haulers and other disabled and immunocompromised folks safe to be out in the world. Once you take that away, someone is may not leave the house, may not be able to participate in society at a full level, both because it's terrifying when you are a long hauler to be potentially exposed to COVID. And it's unsafe for folks who are disabled and immunocompromised. And of course, this is something that folks who were disabled and immunocompromised were running into long before COVID existed of people who didn't take just the most basic level of health precautions. And so they can't go out. But I think this move towards pre-COVID and this idea of COVID being over, A, is a bit of a slap in the face because if I am still sick, then COVID by definition isn't over. And it also feels that there is no room for me or someone who is even sicker than I am and or immunocompromised and disabled separate from long COVID um, to be able to function in society. I think that, you know, also since you mentioned the administration, I, I know that there's obviously this administration light years ahead of where it was before in terms of even recognizing and mentioning long COVID and the fact that you have senators and lawmakers bringing up and introducing long COVID bills. What's difficult is that the primary messaging from any level of government around COVID is still get vaccinated. And that is incredibly important, but that doesn't as I mentioned before, really do anything for long COVID. Might it reduce the severity or the prevalence of long COVID? Absolutely. But it doesn't, A, prevent long COVID completely, and B, that doesn't do anything for those of us who already have long COVID. So it also reinforces this societal understanding as long as COVID is something from which you either recover or you don't. Because the idea that you can vaccinate against something and then you'll be fine leaves out the people who have been vaccinated and are still sick. Yeah. Not to mention the uh, get vaccinated message doesn't seem to be sinking in for a pretty big swath of the population. Also that, also that, which again is one of those things that is terrifying to be outside and you don't know if everyone's vaccinated. And that's why, you know, the vaccine mandates, the proof of 
vaccination going into schools, into restaurants and everything was so emotionally helpful because yes, I was going to be taking off my mask, but I knew that because you had to show proof of vaccination of the door, everyone there is vaccinated. That's not a thing anymore. And I, you know, it's just sort of baffling that they decided to, you know, get rid of everything all at once, like at the same time, like, you know, if you, if you'd like, like no vaccine requirements and you're also getting rid of the masking, like, so, you know, like you have nothing at this point now, right? Like you could have kept one and it would have been like a little bit better, but. Right. Right. And it's, you know, they're fine. Like, like you just said, fine. If you're not going to get vaccinated, just wear a mask. At least there's something, but now we have nothing. And I think that, um, there are, I think it's also difficult that there isn't as much discussion anymore just about the the case count. Not, and I'm not talking hospitalizations because hospitalizations is one, hospitalization rates is one of those other things that reinforces this binary view of COVID of you either are hospitalized and then you recover or you die. So case counts just in general and also discussion of what do all the new variants look like. I think there are a lot of people who have been in, who are still being infected with COVID, but don't realize it because the virus, as viruses do, have mutated, and these new variants look more like the like a cold, like a flu. You know, in the beginning, one of the things for alpha, the alpha variant of COVID, if you had a runny nose or if you had a wet, productive cough, that that was not COVID. COVID was a dry cough only. And it was, you know, fever, dry cough, shortness of breath, that was COVID. But the virus has changed and evolved. So you can have full body aches, like a flu, you can have a runny nose, you can have a wet, productive cough, you can have nausea, you can have vomiting, all of these things that look like other illnesses. And that's not to say that other illnesses like colds and flus don't exist anymore. But you can have the new variants look like other things. And yet at the same time, people aren't as vigilant when it comes to COVID precautions. So the spread is not being mitigated the way that it was before. And there are a lot of people who are like, "Eh, I feel like I have a cold. I'm not going to test. But then there are people who maybe they're required by work if they have a fever to show negative test result before they come back in. They thought they had a stomach virus, but it turns out is that they had COVID. The only way they caught it was by mandatory testing. So the mandatory COVID precautions that were put in place in 2020 were put in place for a reason. Those are the things that stop the the spread, that reduce the burden on healthcare infrastructure. But without those, and with these variants that are less and less recognizable as just COVID, there's nothing to prevent that. And, you know, uh, the virus is certainly um, uh, evolving at a pace that, that, you know, science is still struggling to keep up with anyway. So who who knows where we'll be yes. next year, a year from now. So, um, yep, yeah, exactly. just, it's just a moving target. And it's, uh, it's you know, just sort of... Um, Amazing that, um, you know, there's just this sort of assumption that like it's, you know, it's only going to get milder and milder as it evolves. But Mm -hmm. we don't know that for Mm -hmm. sure. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else you you want to um, tell our 
listeners who, um, you know, maybe dealing with long COVID themselves or someone in their family is, or, um, uh, or their, uh, you know, or coworker is like, um, any advice on, um, how to get connected to, you know, a local network or, um, or local legislator or anything like that. So, uh, you can search COVID-19 long hauler advocacy project on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or even on TikTok now. Um, our website is longhauler-advocacy.org. Longhauler is one word. Um, and I would say for speaking to long haulers, you know, first of all, this is not all in your head. You're not anxious. You're not crazy. You're not a hypochondriac. You're not making this up. And you're also not alone. That there are millions of us who are living with this every day. This is a real condition despite what anybody in your life is potentially saying. And just encourage, I would encourage you to get in touch with C19LAP and um, connect with us, even if it's just to have a community where you can post on Facebook and say, I'm having a really bad symptom day and I need to talk to people who get it because the mental health impact of long COVID is significant. It's very, very significant. And to be frank, there are we have lost several members of the long COVID community to suicide because of how difficult it is to live with. So I would encourage anyone who is experiencing long COVID, who knows someone with long COVID to get connected to us so that you can have this community of support so that you are not alone. That was Rebecca Jacobs, Director of Community Support for the COVID-19 Long Hauler Advocacy Project. Next, we hear from Kim Naxted. She's co-director of the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative at the Century Foundation. So regarding long COVID, the kind of my journey with this work began in really like February, March 2021. And so at that time, I was with the Biden-Harris administration um, on the Domestic Policy Council as the director of disability policy. And of course, there's the COVID team doing the work. So it was in partnership with them. But this, we had an interagency uh, policy committee really focused on disability. And the one thing that we continued to talk about was the impact of COVID on the disability community. And it seems wild to talk about this now, but, you know, early 2021, long COVID was still something that we were kind of grappling with and figuring out what was it, right? Because that was only really exactly a year out from the start of the pandemic. And so we, in those conversations, really were saying that, you know, this is going to be a really big deal and not much was being done yet. The research was very, very early. We were just getting the initial patient-led research out um, from the groups, kind of all those pieces. And so the first policy pieces came together July 2021. Um, and that was the the work that really saying that long covid could be a disability. That was through uh, Health and Human Services and Department of Justice. And so there was um, joint guidance from them. At the same time, there was some guidance from um, Department of Labor saying, hey, here's um, how to access accommodations if you have long COVID. There was some guidance from Department of Education for students who may have a disability due to long COVID. And then a few other agencies have done some pieces since then. And so that was really like the first big whole of government piece. Um, Right now, that seems ages ago (laughs) because we've learned so much. Uh, There's so much more out there. And it was announced um, in the Rose Garden from the president during an ADA anniversary event. 
So that was really kind of when I started working on this was was through the kind of policy lens and and looking at long COVID as a disability and saying, okay, people with long COVID should have rights, should have access to accommodations, should have all of these other pieces. And so from there, you know, that's that's when we started to realize that this was going to, not only was this a really large mass disabling event, but also there was going to be a large impact to the economy. Since then, um, you know, I left the White House uh, this past March. Um, my work has really been around, okay, so what are the impacts? How do we work with some of these um, fantastic patient-led groups and find out what are the challenges that people are facing as they're act- trying to access benefits, um, as they can't go back to work, as they want to go back to work, but work looks very different, and kind of all these pieces together. You know, what we're really finding is that the disability community has kind of opened its arms to people with long COVID to say, this is, this is how things can uh, often be, and this is, this is how uh, life may be different. But that's, a, that's still a hard adjustment if, you know, you've never experienced uh, a disability, if you've never experienced navigating the healthcare system um, in a really significant way. And so in the workplace, we're finding that, yes, we are, now we're in a world where, you know, telework is kind of the norm. Um, it's not as challenging to get an accommodation to telework, but that's not the only accommodation somebody may need. Um, modified hours can still be really difficult to get. Um, working at all, you know, taking extended leave can still be really, really difficult. And so people are not able to go back to the roles that they may have had uh, before a COVID infection. My understanding is that in terms of qualifying for disability, my understanding is that that has always been just an extremely difficult process. So how how does like long COVID throw a wrench into things? I mean, I think it is, it is unprecedented in the sense of um, so many people all at once needing uh, a benefits and support. It's not something most people have, have lived through to have, again, what many of us are calling a mass disabling event. We've had other other viruses that have caused a lot of individuals to experience chronic health conditions and others, but not really to this scale. I think what's unique about long COVID is the fact that the symptoms and the long-term conditions vary so drastically from person to person. And doctors still um, don't always believe the patient. There are some really, really great doctors out there that are working really hard to get the answers and get, get folks connected to benefits. There are some doctors that still don't believe that patients are really experiencing what they're experiencing. That's something that I think is one of the most heartbreaking things for me to hear. Also being somebody with chronic conditions is like, I went through that with, for so many years until I found really fantastic doctors. And so I know how that feels and it's it's devastating. And I think that's a piece that is very, very hard to fix. You can't fix that through policy. And so, you know, education in the medical system is going to be really important. Social Security's process in particular for claims is very, very specific and often relies on on some of the medical diagnoses and medical paperwork. Um, It relies very heavily on that. And so if you have doctors that are not uh, filling out that information and it's um, vague or it's not descriptive, that delays things even further. And so that's an area that I think we need to, to spend more, um, more time on for sure. To qualify for SSI, don't you need to kind of prove the extent to which you cannot work? That, that seems to me like the hardest thing. Yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the process has been extraordinarily challenging and, 
when we think about definitions of disability, this is something that I think you talk to almost anybody in the community and they'll express significant frustration over. You know, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is sort of our broadest definition of disability, right? It's very all-encompassing. Um, it, it still doesn't hit everything, but it's it's the like broadest definition of disability, right? Um, and perceived to have a disability is, is part of the definition. Then, you know, for SSI and SSDI, it's the most narrow. It really, really zeroes in on, um, you know, having to, to prove that you cannot do all of these different things, which goes a little bit counter to even our, our disability identity work that so many of us have done for, for so long. And so going through that process um, can be lengthy. It's very difficult. And um, as I mentioned, one of the, the things that we've heard um, from Social Security is that the medical paperwork coming back from doctors is just all over the place because there isn't a classification at SSA for long COVID at this point. My understanding is that often you do end up like needing a lawyer because it is yeah. like an adversarial process, right? The average person, it, it's, it takes so long to go through. And um, and then you're already at the same time often experiencing um, fatigue and from long COVID and brain fog and um, all the other pieces that are actually part of the disability. And so you add that on top of trying to navigate this extraordinarily complex system, it's setting everyone up to fail. And, you know, the wait times end up being so long that it could be six months plus before they ever hear if their first claim even, you know, has been processed. So let's say somebody gets through um, SSI, but then maybe they also need food benefits. Now you have to start the whole process over. So it's not like it's get in and then you get all the other benefits. It's starting over every single time for every other benefit system. And often they just don't feel it's worth it anymore. They'll go, they'll go a different route. If you do decide to go another route, does that mean what they would try to get a job and then qualify for temporary disability or something or? It could. I haven't heard of too many folks that, you know, what, what that process looks like right now. I think we're early in figuring that out. You know, there, there are a good portion of folks uh, with long COVID that are still trying to figure out what work could look like. You know, is that a part-time job? Is it something with really flexible work hours? Um, it doesn't have to be, since long COVID varies so significantly from person to person, um, it, you know, there, there are folks out there that, that are working, but accommodations are really, really important. And so, uh, that's, the, that's the piece where employer education comes in and understanding that when somebody with long COVID is working, you're going to get high productivity out. But when they say, I can't, I can't be online right now, that isn't, a, an excuse of like, eh, I just don't want to be at my desk. It's a, I actually physically cannot be at my desk working and like understanding that flexibility and what that means. And that this, um, you know, uh, long COVID is, is a, a real significant uh, challenge for folks. And, um, and again, is going to be different for every single person. Do we have any data on how many people have been like denied accommodations or had their claims for SSI denied? It, given um, kind of that we don't have like the concrete data exactly and and where the claims are, I don't think we have any like solid uh, information on, on denials. You know, what we can say is that we know that we have roughly 16 million working age Americans who have long COVID today. And that's a lot. Yeah. So that's a lot of employers and um, and others that need to think about different ways to accommodate 
there's plenty of jobs out there that can do that. And then I think our benefit system need to catch up. There was a Brookings report, I believe, from August, late August, maybe. And they said that, you know, there's um, the lost wages from long COVID would be about $170 billion a year if we don't really think about how to support those with long COVID. And that's a lot of money out of our economy. Has the Department of Labor tried to intervene in some way to either, you know, protect people from being unfairly dismissed or uh, tried to offer some kind of guidance or some kind of enforcement for people who um, whose employers are not willing to acknowledge their disability? Yeah. So the Office of Disability Employment Policy, ODEP, out of Department of Labor has been really kind of leading the charge on this. ODEP is a non-regulatory component of DOL. So, so there's is um, guidance as well as, you know, technical assistance, but they have a, what's called the Jobs Accommodation Network that can provide information about accommodations. Um, I've been I've been really happy with what's been coming out from them. They've done webinars. You know, they do support for employers on what to do, and I think that sort of education lens on it has been really helpful. As far as like the regulatory side, you know, again, I think actually having Department of Justice name that this can be a disability. Um, we've seen EEOC put out some guidance around long COVID as a disability. And so that gives a little bit more of the um, the power to, to pursue claims if there starts to be a discriminatory process here. I feel like it must be a very different experience to try to pursue these claims or seek accommodation if you're working like an on-call retail job or yeah. you work on an assembly line or you're a farm worker versus um, if you're, you know, a salaried professional, right? So mm-hmm. I guess how do we deal with those inequities that are sort of baked into the workforce when you have something that affects so many different types of people in different ways? I think that's a really great question. And I don't know if we've actually answered it. Um, so I'll do my best of, to try to like, talk through it because I do think we have inequities baked into just the types of jobs that are available and then who has access to those jobs out, outright. And when we think about, um, again, who, who even knows that they might have been discriminated against and that they have, could go after a claim. So I think there's a lot of layers to this you know, what is blatant discrimination versus, um, you know, something that uh, is uh, more subtle that somebody doesn't even realize is happening over time, Um, slowly being pushed out of promotional opportunities, things along those lines. So, you know, I think when you think about um, sort of your sitting at home, white collar job, um, you know, you may have somebody with long COVID who is not added to meetings and not included in in-person events and left out of networking opportunities. And um, all of a sudden a promotional opportunity comes up and they're not eligible. And simply because of their disability that they had asked for accommodations and were provided those, but weren't uh, then provided the opportunity to advance in their career. So I think we have to be really cautious about those types of pieces. Um, And then we may have somebody who is in a service industry who's told that they can't get any accommodations because they, uh, you know, can't have modified work hours, period. You know, that could be something that could happen. So I think we have to think about kind of all ends of this and sort of look around the corner about um, what ways do we need to support all the different workers and um, how do we empower them to know their rights 
um, still seek accommodations. And then if the if the work they're in is no longer the work that is appropriate for their skill set, um, find them jobs that they can excel in and use all their talents within uh, the you know the ability to to work on a, a schedule that is more appropriate. In terms of just communities that are disproportionately affected, um, are there ways that we can account for that either in policy response or just in terms of, you know, trying to deal with this at the level of uh, like at the community level? Obviously, the data on long COVID, I think we need more research. One, I think that would give us more of a clue. But I think we can very easily say that as we, since we know how COVID affected people, we know how long COVID has. And so despite the limited data, I think we know that it has disproportionately impacted communities of color, the LGBTQ community, that, um, you know, we know people who are immunocompromised had higher rates of COVID. Therefore, we're seeing higher rates of long COVID. I mean, I think like, right, like the COVID numbers, like the viral infections, you know, can just be layered a little bit over the top of long COVID and socioeconomic patterns as well. So helping communities that have been most disadvantaged, I think we need to just proactively be thinking about policies um, that one, improve access to benefits um, and, and think about how is the system, you know, already, what are the barriers already in the system is probably a better way to put it. And how can we actually make these barriers simplified and um, and kind of alleviate the barriers? You know, we we know when when Social Security offices reopened, there were some long wait lines. It's challenging to go in person when you have long COVID. Are there ways to make the the process easier? Are there ways to make, have things online um, that haven't been for decades? You know, what what are some processes to make the benefit system easier to navigate? And then when we think about from the employer side, what, what can we proactively do to improve access to accommodations? The ADA is strong. It's the enforcement side that often can be challenging. And uh, it relies so heavily on the individual to be the one to advocate and proactively go after it. You know, doing more, pro- more proactive engagement with employers about accommodations, encouraging uh, policies that we know work um, within companies. Um, you know, reward systems where companies can get a, you know, some sort of badge or something for, for good uh, DEIA type policies uh, could be could be options. Has there been discussion with uh, labor unions or, um, you know, just organiza- labor organizations in general that are trying to, that may have, you know, many members who are dealing with this or many members of family members that are dealing with this? I haven't been involved in those conversations if they're happening. Um, so I can't answer one way or another. I think it would be great to see if they if those are. Um, I think this would be a great issue to add to union contracts. Uh, I think accommodations broadly would be something I would love to see more of in, uh, you know, labor negotiations. Um, and so, um, you know, our, our long COVID groups are strong and you're absolutely right. Their members do have long COVID. And so, um, although I haven't directly been involved in those conversations, I, I look forward to more in the future. Um, I remember when the pandemic initially, uh, started at, you know, you would see whole workplaces getting shut down because of an outbreak and a bunch of meatpacking workers were getting ill and there's, uh, you know, walkout because people were so, uh, scared, right. About, um, going to work in terms of like, you know, people who are dealing with the long-term impacts of COVID and they, they got COVID because of something that happened to them at work. You know, is there any legal recourse for those people? 
Well, I, I mean, whew, that's a big question. Um, I, I am not a lawyer. <laughs> and so, um, I, I hesitate to get into some of that only because, um, that starts to step into legal territory that I'm not sure I can fully answer. Um, you know, you're right. OSHA didn't, uh, ever really, I think, go as far as many of us wanted them to, um, in early 2020. So I don't, I don't know. I actually haven't seen any cases brought against any employers around long COVID that could be because I don't, I I mean, I, again, not being a lawyer, I don't follow the like local case law like that closely. Usually once it gets into higher circuit courts, if it's on disability, but I, I don't know what the legal recourse could be here, but I, I am sure that there are people digging into that right now. I can pretty much guarantee it. I do remember um, when they were passing those COVID emergency bills, there were legislators oh, yes. that were trying to get the um, the liability waivers put in for employers. Yes. So somebody was thinking about it. <laughs> I was on the Hill at that time and I was working for Patty Murray in the Senate. And, oh, there were some of the things that would come through to get in. It was, um, there were, they were trying to do... Um, the liability. There were pieces to try to not make the ADA applicable. There were a number of of waivers and um, pieces that came through because I think this was the biggest concern that folks had is that you know that there would be long term ramifications. I just I don't know where it stands legally at this point. I mean, we've been sort of talking about this at the policy level, um, just for like an ordinary ordinary person. If you are you know need a, a, an accommodation for long COVID at work or you're sort of struggling to get the appropriate diagnosis. I mean, what would advice be? I love that question because it's actually, you know, I've done some podcasts and done some things. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question of like, what should somebody do? <laughs> um, and so I think that's a great, a great question. So I think one is asking, like somebody should ask themselves, like, do I want to still work? Do do I think I can continue working for the present time? And so like for that piece, if the answer is yes, I would encourage them to, you know, one, keep keep talking to their doctor, but also knowing that they're going to have to be an advocate for themselves. Don't let the doctor try to tell them no. I mean, again, I mentioned earlier, like I have chronic illnesses. I had so many doctors tell me that I made up pain. I was making up being sick. It was all in my head. And like, none of that was true. <laughs> I mean, like, and it took until, you know, my early thirties to finally have a doctor believe me. And like, I, it was very early in my life that I was started. I mean, I've had chronic illnesses all my life. So people are going to have to be their own advocate and that's really hard. So like you can tap into patient, um, like networks to try to kind of know that you, you know, your own body, you know, what's not right. And so believe in yourself that something's wrong and something is different, write down the symptoms and keep a log and then find that network. So patient led, um, there's patient-led groups. There's a number of them. You can kind of Google uh, community long COVID groups and find one in your area. But keep going to the doctor. Fight for what you need, um, whatever that might be. If it's physical therapy, if it's mental health support, if it's Medicaid, you know, whatever that service might be to support you. If it's scans, keep fighting for it. Also know that you may have to battle the insurance company to get things if you're, whether you're on Medicaid, whether you're on, uh, like if you're employed, if you are on, a, a, um, you know, prepare insurance, um, you know, you're going to have to be your, your own advocate with your insurance company as well. And that's hard. So again, find that community. 
if you, with your employer, I would encourage, I really would encourage people to go through um, to the website of the Office of Disability Employment Policy and look at the job accommodation network. It's called JAN. So it's kind of easy to remember and look at the process of how to request accommodation. There's people there that can actually walk through how to do it. Um, it, There's information that you can give to your employer and it talks through some basic accommodations that you could request if you don't know what might help you. And so start kind of making a list of what you might need and then set up a meeting with your employer and figure out what you want to request and take the form in and say, you know, I have this form. Do we have a form to request accommodations? And so start going through that process and then look up your rights on EEOC and figure out what are your rights as an employee if you start to feel that you're being discriminated against. And so those would be some of the first steps. A lot of our listeners are involved with the labor movement. So I guess maybe, <laughs> maybe yeah. you know, uh, if anyone's in a union that wants to start something on long COVID, maybe they Yeah, do. I think, again, I, you know, I haven't heard a whole lot about, uh, you know, thinking about long COVID in the um, kind of organizing space. And so I think this would be a great topic to start thinking about, um, you know, if a, if a contract comes up for renegotiation, if this is just something to kind of bring up to your local union, um, if you're somebody with long COVID, thinking about like how we start thinking about accommodations as part of our contracts and like how do we bring how do we make disability and bring a disability lens to the labor movement in a more significant way um i think the labor movement as a whole and the disability community have a lot in common in, in kind of thinking about worker power and um and i think we can really um work together to and and uh considering it's basically the same community and really drive um uh some of those rights forward You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Kimberly Naxtet, Senior Fellow and Co-Director of the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative. And before her, Rebecca Jacobs, Director of Community Support at the COVID-19 Long Hauler Advocacy Project. The first thing that struck me about both of these conversations was how utterly isolating and individualized the struggle with long COVID is. Means testing, as I assume most of our listeners agree, otherwise I don't know what you're doing listening to this podcast at this point, is an awful process designed to keep people from getting access to benefits. American healthcare and social services have always been designed this way, and the past few decades of neoliberalism have only seen things getting worse. And of course, a pandemic just piled on top of that, breaking an already non-functional system even further. That, of course, it was designed to be non-functional in the first place, and we should always remember that when we're talking about these systems. But it's also frustrating on our labor podcast to hear both of our guests say essentially that unions have not been doing much or that there's little they can do. And so that means people are so often on their own and we can sort of only imagine individual solutions taking place through individual lawsuits. The political polarization that happened during COVID is isolating enough. Unions need to take up the issue of healthcare more strongly than ever. And as we've seen through the rail workers fight and the solutions being imposed by Congress, that we still nearly three years into a pandemic don't as a country agree that working people should be able to stay home when they're sick. That means Democrats and Republicans in Congress don't seem to think that, and a lot of employers certainly don't seem to think that. But too many people accept this as a given. 
considering that your risk of long-haul COVID symptoms goes up with every infection, we should remember, as our guest said, that even a mild case of COVID can have real ramifications on your quality of life. I was really struck, too, by Rebecca saying that if she works a normal work schedule, quote-unquote normal, right, she has to spend the weekend in bed recovering. We already don't get enough time off as it is. Too many of us work long, irregular hours and have little control over our schedules. If you're forced on top of that to prioritize work to such a degree that the whole what we will part of the old eight-hour day slogan, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will, goes out the window, that's just not a life. Capitalism already assumes that people with disabilities that prevent them from working are no longer valuable. Remember at the beginning of the pandemic, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick saying that elderly people would happily die to keep the economy running. Because apparently, when you're not economically useful anymore, you should just drop dead. Well, unfortunately, I think unions can sometimes be just as short-sighted, assuming that if you're not working, you're not our problem. Yet, as Michelle noted, long COVID is just one of many disabling events that can happen to you at work. Long-term respiratory issues based on something that happened to you at your job. Does that sound familiar to anybody? The history of coal mining, perhaps? It was unions that fought for workplace safety provisions in the first place to mitigate the effects of harmful chemicals, substances, and working conditions on people's quality of life outside the workplace. If you're interested in this issue, I heartily recommend Les Leopold's book, The Man Who Hated Work and Loved Labor, on Tony Mazzocchi and the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union's successful and less successful fights for workplace safety. But the flip side of those workplace safety regulations is to care about the people for whom illness, injury, age, or other conditions have already prevented from working in the way that capitalist society says they should. I've learned so much from disability justice writers like Sonara Taylor, from Eva Kate's work on disability and care, and recently disability activists fight to save the Affordable Care Act from Trump and his Congress. We as labor people have to remember that part of any labor struggle is the struggle to be free from work as much as possible. And that means valuing people as people and not simply for our productivity. Finally, as we wind down this series on COVID, I want to pause with another thing that Rebecca said. She pointed out that the amount of trauma and grief we are all carrying, the loss of life and quality of life that most everyone is living with, and how naturally that leads us to want to put COVID behind us and return to normal. And again, big old air quotes about pretty much every time I use the word normal, and especially in today's episode. I am probably not the only one who is spurred to near panic at the idea of another COVID lockdown. The mental health impacts, as we heard about in the beginning of this series from mental health worker Kelly Benson, are real. Part of moving on with our lives has to be facing that grief and pain, rather than pretending it's not there. Moving forward from this has to mean change, not just back to normal. And part of that change has to be a new level of care for people who are ill, disabled, or otherwise just not able to be productive. Or maybe we just don't want to be so productive anymore. Thanks for listening. That is all we have time for this week. Thanks as always go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis and now Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to you for listening to us, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. 
We especially appreciate it if you can rate us on whatever podcast app you're using, whether that's Apple Podcast or Stitcher, or I don't even know what you might be using, but you can definitely rate us there, and it will help us to find new listeners. Saying nice things is always free. Special thanks once again to those of you who have supported the show beyond just by saying nice things about us, but financially over the past nine years over at the Descent website or at Patreon, patreon.com slash belabored. We really, really appreciate your help making it sustainable for us to do labor journalism. Just like a lot of the workers we cover, we haven't had a raise in a long time and the cost of living keeps going up. Thank you for helping us keep this podcast going. Also, our next episode will be a belabored live virtual event on the evening of December 15th. We'll be wrapping up our COVID series with two amazing guests from two of the industries at the heart of COVID labor struggles, New York public school teacher and union activist Gia Lee of Moore UFT and Chicago nurse and activist Elizabeth Lalash of National Nurses United in Chicago. You can find more information at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org, and register there to attend our year-end virtual live show. If you can't make it that evening, you will, of course, get the audio podcast as usual in your feeds. And if you want to share your story of working, organizing, or not working, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a telecom worker or a rail engineer, a janitor or a grad assistant, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too until Twitter collapses and may it do so soon at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.